Vox Pop. This is a podcast of Missio Day Church. We believe that everyone has a story worth telling, and this podcast gives voice to those stories. We are joined by Emily Ossoff, and co-hosting with me is Hannah Manning. I'm Peter Hale. So what's going on this week? Jonathan learned to fly fish. <laughs> That's amazing. That's so fun. It was really cool watching him. He picked it up pretty quick, and did way better than I ever could have. <laughs> wow. So it was fun. Yeah. I think fly fishing is challenging, but I like that it's the most active of the fishings. <laughs> like, I don't know. It's like spear fishing's pretty active. <laughs> There's no spear fishing here. Well, not here, but I mean, if we're talking about fishing in a, ca- a whole category. That's true. There's much more active. Wow. Spear fishing is pretty fun. I mean, it's bonkers how uh, they, because I've seen people just like free dive with a spear yeah. and go and just like be like, oh, there's a fish there. Yeah. I used to, in high school, my high school boyfriend was really into fishing and he would bow and arrow fish. I don't think that's yeah. the right terminology, but yep. Bow fish. Bow fish. Yeah. I didn't even know that was a thing. <laughs> yeah. That's the a thing. You should, that's bow has that's like this, <laughs> a, a reel that has like really light line on it. And so when you shoot your arrow at the fish, if you hit the fish, you can like pull in. The crazy thing about bow fishing and fly fishing for this matter, is like you're fly fishing, you're, you try and see the fish or you predict where they're going to be. Mm-hmm. But because water has a different refraction in- index than air, where you're seeing the fish is not actually where it is. Mm-hmm. So anytime you have that sort of separation. That makes sense. Yeah, it's weird. Yeah, I haven't got to try fly fishing yet, but yeah. I have to. So is Jonathan like hooked? But I'm <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> is that unintentional? That's very unintentional. <laughs> I am not a punter wow, at all. Good. Yeah. <laughs> well, he is. He got hooked on like fishing in general back in probably the spring. Okay. Just regular fishing. Yeah. And yeah, he loves fly fishing too. So he's got waders now and a vest and he's. All outfitted. Yeah. Oh, nice. He wants a fly rod for Christmas, so we'll see. Yeah. There you go. What's, is that rod fishing? <laughs> What's just normal fishing? I think it's called spinner Sp- fishing. Yeah. Spinner? Spin, like a spinning reel? Oh, I, I yeah, way <laughs> off. <laughs> We're going to get some angry comments on this. Why? Because I don't know fishing? No, because it might People not might even be, be spinner. Uh, we, we, we might be saying that. wrong. <laughs> Y'all both said the same thing, so I feel like we're pretty... No, I've heard a couple um, guys say spinning reel, so I think that's what you call it. Yeah. Yeah. I call it regular fishing. Yeah. Yeah. Same. So, there you go. Nice. I went spearfishing. This is an aside. I went spearfishing in the ocean in California. Really? Yeah. That's crazy. I've got an old teammate, and uh, so you wear a wetsuit because it's... Pacific is very yeah. cold. And you wear weights around your your right. waist to make yourself neutrally buoyant so you can like swim uh, down because the wetsuit is float it makes you float. Yeah. And it's really hard. Spear fishing? Mm-hmm. Is yeah. that hard to swim like the going down? Uh what made it hard was the ocean was kind of rough. So okay. you gotta like be able to dive 
deep in the midst of the current and like not get battered against the rocks and try and see a fish. And that's, did you catch anything? No, no, did no, your no. Friend? Uh, he usually catches something. He's good. Wait. Yeah. Oh. He can hold his breath for like ever two minutes and swim. Oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. I don't know anybody who's done that. Well, I don't know anybody who's told me that they've done that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Can you tell us about where you grew up and what kind of kid you were? Yes. So I grew up in Swain County, which if you don't know where that is, it is west of here, about an hour in a town called technically Whittier, but Bryson City area, Mm. uh, right outside of Cherokee. My dad was a park ranger in the Great Smoky Mountains, so he worked in like the Cherokee part. So that's why we ended up there and lived there since I was about five. And... Do you have brothers and sisters? I do. I have a younger sister who is six years younger. She was a surprise and an older brother who is two years older than me. Okay. So my brother's name is Ben. My sister's name is Laura. And my sister and I are really, really close. My brother and I are as close as possible, Mm -hmm. but not as close as my sister and I. Yeah. Sense. Yeah. Do they live locally still? My sister, she works seasonally with the national park. So she works uh, usually out west and that's usually spring until fall Thanksgiving time. So she actually just got back last week oh, wow. uh, from Wyoming. She's working at Grand Tetons. Oh, spectacular. This is, yeah. This is her second season there. So we miss her all year while she's gone. Yeah. And then when she's back, I try to spend as much time yeah. with her as I can. Yeah. So she, that's where she is. And then my brother, he still lives with my parents. And so he's got like a nice setup there where he's got all of his books and everything. Um, he lived in Chapel Hill for for a few years after he graduated college. But his degree's in history, so he mm-hmm. just had a hard time finding mm-hmm. a job that would pay enough for him to live down there. Mm-hmm. So he moved back in with my parents, and he works uh, – at the public library in Bryson City. Oh, terrific. So when your sister moves back here, where does she move to? She's with my parents right okay. now. Uh, she doesn't really like it there. <laughs> I mean, she loves my parents, but it just yeah. gets a little cramped when you're sure. 25, yeah. you know? Yeah. Sure. She works at a bakery in Bryson City okay. during the season, mm-hmm. and she's an amazing baker. She has really, really great skills. Mm-hmm. So she will work there until, I guess, probably spring when she heads back, whichever seasonal position she gets this next year. So my parents' house is close to that. And I don't know, she did talk about maybe this year trying to find somewhere to stay. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't inside the house somewhere close by. But mm-hmm. yeah. you know, she saves a lot of money there. Yeah, so. I was going to say, it's nice to be able to go back and... Yeah. Live with mom and dad rent free. Or maybe yeah. that she pays rent. I don't know. <laughs> she, she probably pays rent in baking them goodies oh. all the time. I'll take that. <laughs> or bringing things home yeah. from the bakery all yeah. the time. I would Yum. I would make that trade too. Yeah, <laughs> yeah especially well if you tasted my it. sister's baking. Yeah. Okay. Maybe we need to do that. Mm. So, and they love having her there. I mean, everybody yeah. loves my sister, but it's, like I said, I think it's just cramped. Just mm. a uh, adult child relationships, like parent and, and adult child relationships are different. Yes, I agree. Yeah. I love spending time with my parents, but I wouldn't want to live in their house. Yeah. So I love getting together with them for 
a day or a few hours or even around Christmas, I'll spend a couple days over there. Mm-hmm. But it's hard too when you have kids. That it like totally <laughs> changes that dynamic. Very, and very hard. I've had kids. to tell my parents multiple times, like, I love my son more than you. So I am making choices that I think are good. And if you don't think it's good, you're not his parent. So there's that. (laughs) We had a really, really hard time, um, really hard time with that. My mom Uh. and my son. (laughs) I think it's gotten better. That's good. But I had to spend so much time retraining his behavior Mm -hmm. um, when he came to live with me. So she felt like I'm too hard on him. Mm. She wants the grandma oh, lovey. Yeah. yeah. So it's the same with my parents. My it's mom been a very rough road. <laughs> yep. We're yeah. way too hard on Theo. My dad thinks I'm way too easy on him. So I'm like, I guess I'm striking the balance because <laughs> you both think one. So what was childhood like? <laughs> Sorry. I was just on a train of thought about my my parents mm-hmm. and kind of their how they ended up together. So maybe I'll just start with that. Yeah, that's, that's great. It. Yeah. So my, I always put it this way when I tell people about my parents. My dad was a uh, Yankee. He's from Boston, Boston area. Mm-hmm. Raised Jewish and fairly, you know, well off growing up. My mother is from Tennessee and she was raised Baptist and she grew up very, very poor. So they had complete opposite lives, lives, and uh, they somehow ended up together. Still blows my mind. Yeah. <laughs> Who did they meet? <laughs> they met in a Piggly Wiggly. Uh uh-uh. uh. Yes. <laughs> oh, wait. Okay. Tell me more about that. So my dad was working in Big South Fork National Park, which is where my mom is from, Oneida, Tennessee. And she worked at the Piggly Wiggly. And so he'd go in there and get his lunch and from the deli. So she was working in the deli. And uh, he told her that, I guess she said, do you want biscuits or cornbread? And he said uh, he wanted biscuits because last time the cornbread was too dry. <laughs> the rest is history. I have no is, idea how he entered into like oh asking man. her out after that. But um, they just have an interesting story because... They, they're so opposite. He's been with mom 36, 37. They've been together a very long time. So I just think it's amazing how they've made their marriage work. Because I'm not married yet, but I know marriages are hard. Mm-hmm. And it's really amazing. And my dad was not interested at all in having children. He didn't want to be a dad. He didn't want to have kids. He, I think how he phrases it is he thought he'd be lousy at it. Mm-hmm. He just thought he wouldn't mm-hmm. be any good at it. Mm-hmm. Which is so funny now because he is an incredible father. I mean, seriously hit the jackpot on dads. He's amazing. And so it's so funny to me that he thought he wouldn't be any good at it. Uh, So yeah, so life growing up was pretty idyllic. I mean, we had a really good family, close family, very loving. My parents wanted us to experience a lot of things and they wanted us to learn about, you know, the world around us. And my dad, being a park ranger, really wanted us to <laughs> be in nature a lot, mm-hmm. uh, which I think there were times in my life, like phases that I loved that. And then there were other phases, like maybe middle school, where sure. I really resented that. <laughs> sure. yeah. But we did a lot of camping, a lot of hiking, and just trips all over the U.S. And 
we just had a lot of experiences as kids. Uh, and a lot of those were educational related. Like we weren't the family who was going to go to amusement parks all the time. Mm-hmm. Though we did do amusement parks. We were the family who was going to be in the, you know, in the national park or in the children's museum or that sort of thing. Yeah. So that part of growing up was great. Yeah. And my, you know, I think this, you know, us as siblings, we got along pretty well. Brother is on the spectrum. He's like really high functioning on the spectrum. Mm -hmm. And so that shaped a lot of what life looked like for us as kids. He, when at that time, Asperger's, which isn't even a thing now, it wasn't really a thing then. People didn't really know what that was. And so they weren't even able to diagnose my brother until he was about 12. And so all of his elementary school years, he was either misdiagnosed or misunderstood by teachers and other children. When you know what's going on with your kid, it's a lot easier to help them. But my parents didn't know how to help him for a long time. And so there was a lot of my childhood that I remember that was spent with them worrying about him and agonizing over what he was going through and trying to figure out what they were supposed to do to help him. And so there were times, I think, in my childhood that I felt like, you know, he, not that he got more attention, but just that a lot of the focus was on him. Mm-hmm. Not a bad thing necessarily. But at the same time, I was, you know, a, you know, a dancer and mm-hmm. they spent hours driving me to dance and that sort of thing and watching me perform. And so, you know, lots of attention was put on me as well. So I can't, you know, say that it wasn't, it's just, it was an interesting dynamic to grow up in and Mm -hmm. the things that he was really interested in, we would really pursue because those are the things that would open him up. Yeah. So he was really, really into space. Mm -hmm. Still is. I mean, Mm -hmm. his whole life basically. So we like would go to the, you know, Kennedy space center and space camp. We'd just go to all these Mm -hmm. places that he enjoyed, which, you know, were fun for me as well, but focused on his Mm -hmm. interests too. Cool. Was faith a part of your family's story? Did y'all grow up in a church? So we did. My mom brought all of us to church growing up. Uh, I remember just basically the first I remember was we had a church that was in Cherokee that we attended, and we all went together. And uh, my brother accepted Christ when he was about eight, maybe, and I think I accepted Christ when I was like seven. Well, I was baptized. Not sure exactly what I believed at that time. but And then, uh, so we attended that church as a family for a while. And then I think about fifth grade, we went to a different church. And at that church is when our family just stopped. So first my dad stopped going. A few, like not too long after my brother stopped going. And then I ended up going to a different church in high school that had a better youth group mm-hmm. because the church that we were going to didn't even have one. Mm-hmm. And I had a lot of friends that, you know, went to youth group at another church. So I kind of left my mom and my sister to go to that church with friends. And and then eventually my sister, once she kind of got old enough to make that choice, she left too. And then my mom attended by herself for a few years and then she got really tired mm-hmm. of doing that. So I think she probably stopped attending church when I was in college. Okay. Yeah. So, and I'd say that everybody in my immediate family has made a statement of faith of being a Christian, but nobody's really walking in that. Yeah. And 
I'm not sure which ones, if you ask them, would say they still believe that, you know, Jesus is their savior and isn't, you know. It's a really hard walk to do alone. You know, it's tough. It's been really, really tough. Yeah. So where did you go to college? I went to Western Carolina University. What did you study? Social work, which was the third major that I, I wouldn't say tried, but the third major that I declared, and that's the one I stick to, stuck with. So. Oh, what were the first two? My entire life I wanted to be a teacher. I was yeah. 100% sure I was going to be a teacher from the time I was probably second grade at mm -hmm. least, or an author I think was the other thing I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And um, went to teacher cadet class in in high school so I could get credits even towards an education degree. And I think I did it for one semester maybe in college and realized that I just didn't want to be in a classroom the rest of my life because I had been in a classroom my entire life. Oh, yeah. And it just hit me. And I said, mm. I don't want to spend the rest of my <laughs> life in a classroom. So, and also I knew I wanted to work with children, but I really knew that I wanted to work with children who were in need. Mm -hmm. And plenty of children in the school system are in need. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I did feel like I wanted to focus my efforts on specifically children that were particularly vulnerable. Yeah. And then I studied birth through kindergarten education for a semester or two because I wanted to pursue child life, being a child life specialist, which you can get that certification after you get a birth through, birth through kindergarten education degree. But they, as, as soon as I joined that program, they changed it to online only. And I found out yeah. that that does not work for me. Yeah. I could not do the teach myself and yeah. turn in things. I need to be right. in a classroom learning, taking notes. Mm -hmm. I think that's why I like Brian's pe preaching so much because I like, you know, yeah, yeah. that's how I learn. So I couldn't do the online. And so I took an intro to social work class and I said, oh, that's, that's it. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. social work is super broad. Mm -hmm. You can study or you can focus on any area. You can focus on basically any age of people, people mm -hmm. groups, and it's all about helping mm. people, serving populations in some capacity. So you have like endless choices. So even if I didn't want to do what I'm doing now, I could go work with geriatric patients in a hospital, Yeah, which mm -hmm. is what my aunt does. So. That's cool. Very cool. So that naturally leads us into what you do now. <laughs> I am a foster care coordinator at Black Mountain Home for Children. I worked there, I was hired there in 2012 and did residential care for six and a half years until I went to Uganda. And then when I came back from Uganda, I ended up back, I ended up in the foster care department instead, mm -hmm. which is great. I love, yeah. I, I've really, really enjoyed that change. What's your favorite part of the job? My favorite part of the job is being able to work with the foster families. I love it. I love being able to show them commitment and love and support and also just say, you know, hey, I've been there. <laughs> I've mm, walked this. Mm -hmm. And not everything I can say that I can relate to, but a lot of it I have. And mm -hmm. so I feel like I can come behind them or come alongside them and just pour into their family and pour into the kids that live there. And the system is can be really, really 
messed up and broken and can mm-hmm. sometimes make a child's story not better in the ways that it should be. Mm-hmm. And so being able to be part of that, I can actually intervene in a lot of ways to help things from failing that could fail. Mm-hmm. So when when you only have DSS, trying to make sure all the kids' needs are met, they're very busy, they have very high caseloads, it can be really difficult for them to do. So I can make sure that those really important things aren't falling through the cracks. Mm-hmm. If a child needs extra therapies, if a child looks like they may need physical therapy or occupational therapy, I can pick up on those things quickly because I talk to the foster parents multiple times a week and just anything that the child needs, I can do my best to make that happen. How many families do you have interactions with? So, and it varies. My job specifically goes by child caseload. Okay. So I currently have, I believe 12 on my caseload. And some of those are in the same family. So I would say I probably have nine families. That was That's a guess. Yeah. I think it's nine, eight or nine. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and then like about 12 kids right now. How long do you stay with those families? Till the child that I'm specifically managing a case for leaves that home. Mm-hmm. Then, you know, I could work with the family again yeah. if another child is placed with that family that is assigned to me. But otherwise, you know, it could be a different caseworker that that child child gets uh, placed with. So, you know, I've been there a little over a year and I've worked with, you know, a lot of the families I've had for that entire time. Oh, wow. So you do get like a, you guys get a really good relationship. Yes. Yeah. And I visit them every month. Right now it's virtual, but I visit them every month at least. I bring supplies, any like donations, anything I can bring to them. So, yeah, we do build a, a good relationship. Yeah. So how did you get to Black Mountain Home? That's an interesting story, actually. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people know this story, but I needed an internship for my very last semester of college. And we had someone come to our one of our classes from the CME at Mission Children's, which is the child medical exam or child medical evaluation and she was a social worker that worked in that department. And basically, they interview children for signs of abuse or, well, yeah, specifically abuse or neglect. And she came and talked to us about what she did. And I was just entranced. I said, oh, this is really amazing work. And I'm so interested in this. And I think I would like it. it would be very different, very interesting. So I actually went up to this lady and I said, hey, do you guys take interns? And they said, well, we never have. And I, But she allowed me to come and interview So I interviewed in this room full of five people all interviewing me about this. And they're like, well, we've never taken an intern. And then they actually made me watch a video about of a child being interviewed just to see if like basically, hey, can Mm. you could you handle this doing this day in and day out? And of course, it was really emotional. (laughs) But I waited days and days and got a call at the end of the week that um, they worked. They had a spot for me. So I was thrilled. Because I was like, man, I went and pursued this. Yeah. I got it. I was so excited. So meanwhile, that exact same day, I interviewed at Black Mountain Home for Children, too, because I wanted to have more than one option. And that wasn't, it wasn't even really an interview. They just kind of welcomed me in and showed me around as if I were coming. Mm -hmm. So I felt like it wasn't, 
like there was no challenge. There was no, mm-hmm. yeah, it was too easy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so I, and I didn't get to see a whole lot of the campus and it looked and some of the buildings are really old because the campus is over a hundred years old. Mm-hmm. The, the home is. So I was like, yeah, this place is old and stuffy. Like I'm not really, I don't want to work here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I just didn't pursue that. Then I got the other one and took a out of the country, my first out of the country trip for two weeks, got back and had a voicemail from Mission Children's, the uh, social worker there. And she said that she was leaving. And so there wouldn't be a social worker to oversee my internship and I couldn't come. I was devastated. I was so sad. Mm. So I called, I don't know. (laughs) I said, "Um, do you still, could I still come and intern there? (laughs) So she said, yeah, of course. So yeah, so I got there and my very first day, I believe, was a staff meeting day. So Mm -hmm. they have staff meetings every week. And the very first thing that they did at the beginning of staff meeting was open with a devotion. And I couldn't believe it. I'm sitting in this room full of people in a professional setting, and we're doing a devotion and we're praying. And I remember, like, after they finished the devotion and prayed, I just turned my head up towards God, (laughs) I guess. And said to myself or like said to God, you know, I, I get it. I know why you put me mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if you fast forward my story after my internship graduated, I spent a little time in Uganda, came back and then wasn't planning on working there at all. Mm-hmm. Actually didn't even think that they would think of hiring me mm-hmm. and got a call out of nowhere two weeks after I had come back offering me a job. Wow. I didn't apply anywhere. I was thinking of going to graduate school and they offered me the job and then I was there for six and a half years. So God is, God, God's put my story together my whole life. Yeah. What, what, what year was that? I mean, like, was that like 2015? That, um, that I started there. It was Mm -hmm. 2012. 2012. Okay. Very cool. May of 2012 was when I started. Yeah. And you did residential. So were you like a house mom? No, I was a, same sort of thing I do now as case manager. Okay. So there's four houses on campus and I managed two of them. So okay. all the kids in both of those houses were on my caseload. So typically I would have 18 to 20 kiddos. Mm-hmm. That seems like a lot. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was too much is what I'll say about yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wanted to be able to do my job effectively but with that many kids it's very very difficult to do that. Sure. Especially because as soon as some one or two leave more two, come. Yeah. 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 So then it's just, yeah, it was a very difficult job and I learned a lot and I grew a lot and there's, there was wonderful things about it and I love the ministry, but it's a lot yeah. for one person. It was. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know much about Black Mountain, um, but just <laughs> for my knowledge, how many houses, how many houses do they have? They have four on the main campus. Okay. Plus, there's a, they call it an emergency foster home that's lower campus okay. that can take two or th- two or three kids, okay. usually younger kids. And then we have one in Brevard that can take up to five maybe. We call the, that a satellite campus. Okay. So th- that's all, well, and then we have also have independent living, which is for kids that are 18 through we say 18 to college graduation, but mm-hmm. basically it's until they have, they're able to launch out into society. Okay. So we have a, 
they have to pick a track. So they either pursue college and we work, help them through that, or they are in the apprenticeship program, which we have a few different tracks in the apprenticeship program where they learn a trade and then they do an internship in that trade and then hopefully enter into a, a career or job with that. That's for our kids that college is just not the right fit for them. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's really cool. I didn't know that they had all that. Yeah, it's an incredible place. And yeah. I do feel like not that many people know what we do and yeah. know about us. But any, mostly anybody who ever learns about White Mountain Home <laughs> is just astonished. So Yeah, yeah it's really neat. We, my, Mark and I lived with a couple who ran a place like Black Mountain Home. Uh, it's called the Joy House. Okay. Georgia. Okay. And then there's another one in Dahlonega maybe. Mm-hmm. And we had friends who were house parents for a really long time. And yeah, I, I could not, do, I, I mean, it, that's, that's hard work. <laughs> yeah. I always say house parenting is the hardest job in the world. Yeah. I really believe that. Yeah. And people have really bad views on residential care and, and there are a lot of residential facilities that aren't great, but mm-hmm. we really set ourselves apart and we, our campus is set up differently. The way we operate is set up differently. The things that we do with the kids is different. And the big difference is that we're a Christian organization. Mm-hmm. And so having prayer and, you know, loving the children the way that Christ would love them just mm-hmm. changes, it changes everything. everything. Yeah. 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 That's really cool. And we mean it. So we hire people yeah. that, well, we hire, you know, whoever, but God sends us people that mean it, not just people who say it and and just have amazing, amazing coworkers. All of my interactions with Black Mountain Homer children have been amazing. I, at Veritas, we come, like, it's minimal, but we we are able to come once a year and spread mulch and do, you know, regular labor things. Mm -hmm. And everyone I've met has been so kind. Mm -hmm. And you can tell they, and I can tell from you that you like, you really love the kids that you work with. And I think it's really powerful and wonderful. Yeah. And I think it's a really amazing place. Thank you. Yeah. I do think that a lot of places you'll have people that do the job for their paycheck or mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Black Mountain Home typically does not have people like that. Black Mountain Home has people who are passionate about the children that mm-hmm. they serve. Yeah. It's beautiful. Yeah. How does your faith enable you to do what you do really well? I think my faith plays a role because I can recognize that foster care in general and caring for the children that need homes is living out the gospel directly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so because of that, I can, I guess I have a greater grasp on how incredible, you know, what we're doing is the really cool thing is that our foster parents who choose to get licensed through us, typically are Christian as well because they know that we are a Christian organization. So because of that, I'm able to pray with them, mm-hmm. send them devotions, you know, say, hey, what? how can I pray for you? How can I be praying? And so that allows them to actually be covered in prayer by our whole team, by our whole agency, and the children that are living there as well. And it, it can make a huge difference. We know that the power of prayer is... Um, is a real thing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that, and plus God is, God refreshes us and he renews us. So when my job is really hard and I can see very clearly the brokenness mm-hmm. of our world in our children's stories, God gives me peace and reassurance and refreshment when 
it seems like too dark mm-hmm. at times. Does that make sense? Yeah, totally makes sense. And it allows you to have a common bedrock that you can relate to people on in an honest way. Yeah. Which is amazing. And needed in a place where the stories are hard. And yeah. that's real life. Yeah. Um, so how did Jonathan enter your story? If you're cool to talk about it, you don't have to. Yeah, Jonathan typically likes for me to share parts of his story and how he came to live with me. I think he sees that it's unique, and most of the time he appreciates it. Okay. So it was interesting how that came to to be. And we can talk about this one if you talk about Enneagram. (laughs) Yeah. I'm a four, so I see the world very differently. I feel like I see the world very, very differently than everybody else does. So to me... I was working in residential, and when counties can't find placement for kids, they contact private agencies like ours, and they'll send a little bit of information. They'll either call and give you a little bit of information, or they'll send it through email. And every day, we were getting these referrals for kids that we could not place, either in a foster home or in residential. Every day, it was, you know, oh, we have this three-year-old who, and you know, some horrible story, and we'd have to say, sorry, we just don't have anywhere. And it was all the time. Sure. So God just really started to convict my heart because when I moved to Black Mountain to start that job, I went ahead and got a two-bedroom apartment so I could have a guest room. And uh, I was like, well, (laughs) I have an extra bedroom, so if they would license me, why would I not Mm -hmm. just help a kid? So I went to an informational um, session on foster parenting. This was at Buncombe County DSS because I can't be licensed through the agency I work for. So I went to the informational session, found out that there wasn't anything that disqualified me from being a foster parent. So at that time I was 20, I want to say 22, 23 maybe. So I thought maybe I was too young, maybe I didn't make enough money, but they said, you know, basically I met the requirements. So I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll just take the class and then decide if I want to get my license. So I took the class. It's a 10-week course, and I really enjoyed it because I'm a little nerdy like that. Mm -hmm. And then after that, I was like, I'm going to go ahead and get my license, but when they call you for placement, you don't have to take a child. Mm -hmm. You can decide. Mm -hmm. You can say, "Mm, I don't know if that'll fit. Uh, So I said, I'll just go ahead and have my license. Then I can decide if Mm -hmm. I feel equipped or ready to take a child. So um, once my license came back, about two weeks later, they called me with the referral for Jonathan. And they told me at that time he had a lot of really aggressive behaviors, uh, physically aggressive behaviors. And they told me about some of those behaviors (laughs) and said, you know, sometimes he might hit or kick his caregiver. (laughs) Are you, would you want to try to take this child? And he had actually... The story that they told me was fairly rough, mm. um, some of the things he had been through. So I knew he wouldn't be an easy mm-hmm. uh, ch- charge. <laughs> and so I, uh, I was like, sure. <laughs> so I got ready for him to come. I was really, really nervous. Mm-hmm. And then they called me about 6 p.m. And they said, we found a family member for him to go live with. How old is he at this? Right now he's 12. No, how old is he when? Oh, he was five. He five. had just okay. turned five. Okay. So I went home and then I just 
I know that when they place kids like this with other family members, a lot of times those places don't end up being safe either. So I just remember I went home and prayed for him um, and just prayed that he was in a safe place and kind of continued to pray for him over the next couple of weeks. Two weeks later, they called me and they said the family that took him feels like they can't continue to provide care for him. Are you still open to taking him? I said, well, I've been praying for him for about two weeks, so of course I'll take him. And so, yeah, so that's how he ended up with me. And then he, he stayed with you. Yeah, I mean, it's a very, it is a long story, but he his plan was reunification for, mm-hmm. I think, two years, the first two years it was reunification. Then they changed his plan to adoption and then took another year and a half, I think, until the adoption uh, was completed. But I had not planned on adopting a child, obviously, as a young single person. That was God's plan. And so... I, that was, that's a big part of my story is just going through the process of deciding to adopt him when I felt completely ill-equipped to do so. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. So when you become a foster parent, the point of foster care, I think you probably know, is to be a temporary placement for a child until they can go home. That's the hope for all these kids is that they can go back to their families. And I care about foster care and I care about birth families and to me I want to support that so uh, I very much supported that goal with him and his mom for a long time prayed for them often um, and that process can be very difficult watching what the kids walk through the disappointments things seeming to get better and then Mm -hmm. kind of going downhill again so I didn't really think about adopting him maybe in the back of my mind, but not really. Then one day they, so they say, don't, don't think about adoption. You know, they don't want you to think about that because you're supposed to be a foster parent. And then one day they just come to you and say, we're going to probably change the plan to adoption. Would you be open to adopting? (laughs) So then you all of a sudden have to process this Mm. thing that you haven't really given much thought to. yeah. Yeah. So I remember praying through that for a while and just being really torn up over it because I knew that it would be challenging for so many reasons. Mm -hmm. Jonathan, you know, has, Jonathan has unique needs like Mm -hmm. any child that Mm -hmm. has grown up, you know, for the first five years of their life in a hard environment. And so I knew that that was going to take on its own challenges. I also knew that I wasn't married. I also knew that I wanted to be married one day and that somebody choosing to take on me and my child would be a whole other thing. Mm -hmm. So just lots of pieces. Mm -hmm. And also I sort of gave up my twenties in a way socially and that sort of thing. And I don't, I don't mean that to sound like, Oh, you know, I should have had this time and I didn't like, I don't feel that way about it, but I, I very much had to pour my life into him being a single Mm -hmm. mom and working full time. So I remember praying through the whole adoption piece and thinking, okay, well, maybe I could do it, but, you know, we just, we need like, you know, family therapy and, you know, he'd, he'd need to continue with therapy and all these things. And the process over, it was months long, I would say, but God slowly started to assure me in different ways and assured me in the fact that he was going to be there. He was going to be with us. And that even though I know that I'm not, not, not really equipped to be his mom, that he was going to come alongside me and 
equip me in those ways that I needed. And there was just a few different ways that this happened, but one specifically, because I just really enjoy the stories I had been, Jonathan knew that his plan was adoption. And I did not ever say to him, I'm going to adopt you. That's the plan. We would just talk about, you know, now we're going, you know, you're going to have a forever home. That's, I don't even remember how it was phrased to him, honestly. And uh, one night he came to me and I was sitting on the couch and he said something about, you know, me being his mom or when I was his mom or something along those lines. And I said, well, you know, we don't know that quite yet. Plus his, you know, parents still had some rights at that time. So Mm -hmm. we really didn't know what was Mm -hmm. going to happen for sure. And uh, he said, no, I know you're going to be my mom. I know you're going to be my mom because God told me at night that you were going to be my mom. Mm. And it like wrecked me. I just remember my heart like jumped and I really felt like that was a time that day, that evening that God just sort of confirmed in my heart that I already was his mom. I'd already been his mom for, you know, two and a half years probably at that point and that I already, I already was mom. Mm -hmm. So why should this child have to transition to another home when he's already left one? And I just knew that I I was his mom and I had to Mm -hmm. continue to be his mom and so wow it's a beautiful story so i gotta tell you something so i've really enjoyed watching y'all's relationship mm-hmm. both i taught jonathan before y'all went to uganda in the third through fifth grade sunday school class okay. and so i remember jonathan then and then recently with youth group i've been spending a lot of time with jonathan and he's come over and we've done you know, bike, bike things or mm-hmm. yeah, he, he's been really fires or whatever, that kind of thing. And, um, but today specifically, so we've been going through Exodus 34, six or seven is when God first gives this explanation to Moses about his character. And we're breaking down, uh, these different attributes of God that he tells himself. And, and so we were talking about loyal love or steadfast love today. And, um, so one of the questions in small group was, where in your life do you see loyal love? And he's like, I see it in my mom. <laughs> and I was like, that is so amazing. Sorry. If you're... <laughs> oh my gosh. But um, like that love is uh, self-sacrificial and and it costs us something, but it's worth it. And uh, I just thought it was like so beautiful. Um and I've, I've seen, when Jonathan was in my third to fifth grade class, uh, like I didn't know all of his story, but I knew, you know, the, just little snippets. And sometimes it was hard to, to teach him in, in the more of a classroom environment. And like I've seen him like in the last few months just really open up and like and that's been a process for the last few years, but like he is so uh, joyful and like he is very high energy and like he can just be like, you know, when you see like a really happy puppy just like running around in a field, <laughs> like Jonathan is one happy, super athletic, smart <laughs> kid. And like, I think exceptional. it's amazing. Um, so I just wanted to tell you that. Thank like, you so much. That. It, that brings a lot of joy to me. Jonathan, there's a tendency for Jonathan to be very misunderstood by people in his life. 
because people don't know a story, not that they need to, but um, Jonathan is, he's an incredible kid and people who pour into him and love him, especially the way that you have been getting to know him as his youth group leader. I, it's just, it's amazing. Um, and I'm so thankful for it. And the steadfast love is something that I've, it's just, it's an incredible gift to love unconditionally. I think we see it a lot of times as, I don't know, maybe something that we have to do or we have to choose to do. And sometimes biological kids, any kids can be really, can be tough to feel a loving feeling towards in a certain moment. Oh yeah. <laughs> we know this. Yeah. But it's amazing how your heart is bound to your child mm -hmm. in a way that you know that that love you feel for them is completely unconditional mm. yeah. no matter what. Yeah. And I always, always, always strive to tell him as many times as I can, even when he's in the midst of a consequence or in the midst mm -hmm. of trouble, I try to tell him, I love you so much and I wish you hadn't made that decision and I'm disappointed about that decision, but I love you so much. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to stop loving you. And I have to tell him all the time, I'm not going to give up on you. I'm not going to stop loving you. There's nothing you could do mm -hmm. that would make me give up on you or stop loving you. Yeah. And that's a, with our particular situation, that's definitely, I think um, it's important for him to know. And it's important for me to remind myself that, that's what God has asked me to do. Mm -hmm. And I also promised him that in our adoption ceremony, um, I wrote up this whole thing. And part of it, I remember, was that I was never going to give up on him. Yeah. It's such a, I mean, it's a direct picture of, of our relationship with God. And this is true for your relationship with Jonathan, but there's nothing we could ever do to make God love us more. And there's nothing we could ever do to make him love us less. Yeah, that's what my, um, yeah. That's that's one of the that's one of my favorite like analogies of you know of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Yeah, beautiful. And I want I want Jonathan to see that, especially as he's trying to figure out what he believes about God, mm -hmm. and who he thinks God is. And he's really in the midst of trying to figure this out. Like he's in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. He's been there for a year or so, and um, but. I just continue to try to do my best to show him Christ and yeah. I fail all the time at it. We all do all the time, but I think our job is not to be perfect pictures. It's just to like sow seed yeah. and God will do the, do the rest. The yeah. Holy spirit works in and amazing admit, ways. And admit your mistakes and apologize mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. ask for forgiveness and make sure your child understands I'm a sinner too. Mm -hmm. That's the reason I need Jesus. Yeah. Well, that was amazing. Yeah. So how did you find Missio? When I was in college, maybe my senior year, um, a guy from my, uh, the same college ministry I was part of said, Hey, there's this great church over in Asheville, which was an hour drive, mm -hmm. but he just didn't really like a lot of the churches in our area. So uh, he would drive over to Missio and went with him a few times. Honestly, back then, thought Missio was kind of weird. I remember being like, this is kind of a weird church. That's I mean, fair. I like Brian's <laughs> preaching, but it's kind of weird. <laughs> <laughs> and so after I graduated, like 
I said, I went to Uganda for a few months, came back, started at Black Mountain Home, wasn't attending church for mm, six months, maybe something like that. And then I got to a place where I knew I really needed to be involved in church again. And I was like, well, Missy is the only church I know over here. So I started going and have never left. Mm-hmm. And that was 2013. Wow, that's been a little while now. It's been a long time. Yeah, yes. Terrific. So you were you were very plugged in with Missio for a while. And not to say you weren't plugged in when you went to Uganda for the second time, but I think much of the listening congregation will know that we sent you after Uganda. Would that have been twenty eighteen or yeah, twenty eighteen? Yeah, came back twenty nineteen. Yeah. Okay. What started the process of going to Uganda again and can you fill us in on your time there? Yes. When I kind of have to back up a little bit in yeah, the story. That's, that's great. When I was in college, I wasn't real interested in missions, but after the earthquake in Haiti, I felt really drawn to do some sort of service if I could. So I took my first mission trip in college to Haiti for a week, really connected with missions and recognized that it was part of who God made me to be, which was so interesting because I would never had any interest Mm -hmm. in it before. So I took, I think, a couple more trips to Haiti, or at least one more trip to Haiti, and then I knew I wanted to commit myself more long-term to work, you know, in some specific country. Ended up in Uganda for those four months after, right after college. And at the end of that four months in Uganda in 2012, I didn't actually want to come home. I felt like there was a lot more that the Lord could do with me in in Uganda, or at that time I was even um, considering other African countries. So I didn't want to come. I didn't want to come back to the states. I didn't have a job. Didn't have any reason to come back. What were you doing in Uganda? That particular time, I was working with a ministry called Empower Child, and they're based in Kampala, um, and they had a church plant about an hour outside in a village. So every Sunday we'd go to the village and do children's church for about 200 kids um, that wow. would gather uh, in base. First used to be a little hut, and then they just outgrew it because all mm-hmm. the kids were coming. And so then we would bring these big tents and set them up, and we'd do children's church for about 200 kids. It's really fun. But So that's what we did on Sundays. And their, main mini- their, all, their ministry has mainly moved out there now. They've built a school and done a lot of things out there. During the week, we served in different places. Each day we'd do two or three projects, and they'd repeat each week. So we were still going back to the same places each week. But we were either in primary schools, secondary schools, orphanages, babies' homes. Children. We, there was a children's hospital, rehabilitation hospital we went to a lot, and uh, Remand Home, which is a – technically it's a juvenile detention type center. Okay. But – it's also a place where they throw in kids that are just living on the streets, gotcha. whether they've committed any sort of crimes or not. So that's that was like mostly there was girls there too, but it was a lot of teenage boys. It was a huge group of teenage boys. So yeah, so those were all kind of the projects that we did, and just it would be different each day. And we would like in the babies' homes, we would just serve by washing clothes, hanging clothes, mopping floors, doing things like that. And then in the schools, we would do feeding programs sometimes. We would do a game session, music session, Bible story session, uh, craft, depending, you know, where we were. So that's what we would do in, in the other areas. 
Very cool. So at the end of the, I didn't really want to come home from Uganda, from Uganda, but I felt as in my prayer time and my journaling that God was like clearly saying that I needed to come home. I felt that was really strong, which now that I, since I got a job, offered a job two weeks after getting back, mm-hmm. I, I think that that was God's plan. Mm-hmm. But I also felt like God was confirming that I would end up going back to Uganda mm-hmm. one day, that he mm-hmm. was going to bring me back at least to the country. And so I thought that I might work at the children's home for a year or two, and then I would go back mm-hmm. to Uganda. <laughs> that turned into six and a half years adopting a kid. I was another piece of trying to decide whether I could adopt him. Um, just taking that into consideration. Mm-hmm. You know, well, I was I wanted to go serve abroad again, and yeah. if I adopt this boy, how could I do that? And God was like, you know, there's no reason you can't just do it together. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So th- so I prayed about that for you know for years, and after his adoption was final, I was actually able to actively look into needs and uh, found that there was a need for a social worker at uh, Monty Baby Cottage, which is somewhere that a friend of mine had served for a little while and talked to them and felt really good about it. They didn't have this really hard process of all these trainings you have to go through or money you have to pay. They basically said, our social work department needs assistance. Mm. We'd love to have you. And they had a really good setup in way that I could accommodate Jonathan and mm-hmm. his schooling needs and all these things. So it worked out. It just all really fell into place. So we moved over there August 2018, and I had that very open-ended. I knew Mm -hmm. I was going to commit at least a year, but I thought we'd be there much longer. Mm. But God changed everything that I thought was. (laughs) God God never likes my plans every time I make a plan, or he always changes it. So we ended up coming back after a year. Yeah. Was it because of situations there and you felt called back or? So the baby's home that I worked at acquired new leadership Okay. while I was there. It was an American couple that came, that were sent in okay. to take it over. And that changed everything. All of the functioning, all of the community, everything about being mm-hmm. part of that ministry mm-hmm. kind of almost made it not like a ministry at all. Mm. And that would be like an hours long story. Sure. So I encountered a lot of difficulty with that ministry mm-hmm. after when they came in. And so I ended up resigning my position there in May, I believe. And even though it was a volunteer position, you know, <laughs> resigned from my yeah, volunteer yeah. position. And then I was uh, going to work for another organization which is an amazing, beautiful, wonderful organization over there. I was going to help with their social work department because the social worker they had was fairly new in the field and just could use some guidance Mm -hmm. with certain things. So I was going to come and and Mm -hmm. spend some time helping her. But around that same time, Jonathan started really, well, we came home for the summer. Mm -hmm. And so he got to be with friends. He got to see his family. He got to do some gymnastics stuff when he got back. So he started really asking me to move home Mm. on a very regular basis. Mm. I really want to move home, mom. I want to go back to my school. I want to go back to gymnastics. Mm -hmm. I want to be near my family. And I would, I would acknowledge what he had to say. And then I would say, well, we're going to pray about it. Mm -hmm. I'd say, we're going to pray about it. And then I check back in with him every, you know, couple weeks. 
and say, how are you feeling Mm -hmm. now? And so as I prayed through that and recognized that our time in Uganda was interesting and good in a lot of ways, but that his needs were really going to be met better mm-hmm. in the States uh, as far as the sports, you know, competitive sports, which is something that's very important to him, schooling and therapeutic needs, supports, those sorts of things. I, I really felt like it was the best thing for my son at that point to transition home. Mm-hmm. And he was very, very, very happy mm-hmm. to come home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so he loved parts of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were some real hardships. He got malaria while we were over there. And, I mean, he was okay. We mm-hmm. caught it really early. As soon as he got the fever, I took him. We were actually visiting Sippy Falls, which is a waterfalls up in the north. And <laughs> so we had to go to this really tiny, strange clinic up in the mountains that is just really interesting. And... Uh, so then they, they did say he had malaria, which I think he had gotten on safari, mm. but they started treatment that we started treatment that day, mm-hmm. but that week he was just so sick. I mean, mm. just, he would say to me, mama, I think I'm dying. Am I going to die? Aww. Just like super, super weak. So that happened. We had this whole thing with these puppies that lived on our compound that they all died because they w- had not been given vaccinations, and he like witnessed all of this. We had the threat of break-ins mm-hmm. because that's a reality when you're right. a white missionary living there. And there was lots of fear at nighttime of, are we going to be safe? Is somebody going to try right. to break in? Yeah. So that there was a lot of that. Jonathan also cut his hand open really severely. Sheesh. Um, and had to have like stitches three layers deep on his hand and so those were kind of his hardships and during my first it was December so I moved over there in August so in December uh, the director of the baby's home at that time got into a bad accident and had traumatic brain injury and she was in Kampala in the hospital for maybe about a month and that's several hours from where we lived mm-hmm. in Jinja we had to go out there periodically to help her and to stay with her so there was a night that I was taking the night shift to be with her because they said that her, this is when she was finally awake, mm-hmm. that her brain was so confused that she could get up in the middle of the night and jump out the window. Mm. So she had to have people with her all night and yeah. more than one because she is a grown woman and yeah. she could basically fight one person sure. off. So I'm in that room trying to stay up all night <laughs> to keep watch on my friend mm-hmm. and I get a call that um, from the friends who were watching Jonathan that he had sliced his hand open and he was going to need stitches and <laughs> that he was freaking out and that they wouldn't even let the doctors wouldn't even let him look at his hand because he was so panicked mm-hmm. and it was just a mess and so I'm like on FaceTime with him but it, you know this reception wasn't great trying to calm him down but he's panicking and I'm like I can't be with my kid mm-hmm. in this super traumatic moment because I'm with my other friend who's been through super traumatic moments. Also in need. Yeah. 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 And and so that was another hardship that he experienced. And luckily everything went pretty well. The stitches, you know, could have been better. And they might have told us they were dissolvable when they were not. But it's okay. We came back to the States and got them pulled out. <laughs> TIA. Yeah. This is yeah. Africa. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. And so um there was just a 
plus everything that happened with the ministry that I was working with. So there was there was just a lot of there was a mm-hmm. lot of hardships that we encountered. And so I think he enjoyed his time there, but he was ready to come home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think he needed uh, familiarity again. So you all have been back for a little while now. Yeah. A little over a year. A little over a year. Yeah. Where do you feel like God is working in your life currently or wh- what does the future hold for y'all? That's two questions. But So Jonathan didn't have the easiest time transitioning back. Transitions are hard for kids with mm-hmm. hard backgrounds. So, I think that's part of it. Mm -hmm. He also just coming to an age of middle school, Mm -hmm. that's a lot of transition Mm -hmm. in itself. So we had a fairly rough time, I would say January through March. And that was a a hard time in our life. And uh, a lot of that dealt with what was going on in school for him and we knew that we needed to find a new school and we knew we needed to find a, a middle school. I didn't really want him in public middle school for many, many reasons. And I just knew that he, he would struggle in that environment for a lot of reasons. So God basically put this educational option in our laps. Mm-hmm. Never, ever thought that it would be possible but actually because of COVID <laughs> turned out to be an option for us. It's the best fit for him possible. So God has orchestrated once again, a solution and provided the needs that we had and that Jonathan had. So God's worked in that way. God is also working in me as an individual. This has been a year of a lot of growth for me, maybe because a lot of my time seemed to open up <laughs> with mm-hmm. COVID mm-hmm. and just I've, I've made some changes, really positive changes, and feel like I have definitely been more intentional with my time with the Lord, my you know time in Scripture, my even just reading other books, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. So God's growing me a lot this year too, helping me to be a better mom, be more confident in myself, be you know more of the woman that He's created me to be. Yeah, amazing. How's the girl that got in the accident? She's amazing. Oh my gosh. Yes. She's incredible. She has a beautiful, amazing story. Mm-hmm. Um, listen, I'm telling you what. She was out for days. Mm-hmm. So we'd go visit her. She was completely out, mm-hmm. out cold. Mm-hmm. And um, <laughs> and seeing her, seeing her like that was so hard. Sure. I mean, that was a really hard time. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, so she, when she finally started waking up, Mm -hmm. she would just, she'd be laying in bed and she'd just sit up in bed. She would start either quoting scripture or like praying. She just like said, I mean, she, she, because this woman, she loves the Lord. She's, she's wonderful and really has a strong, deep love for the Lord. So it was just amazing to me Mm -hmm. that when she was completely out of it, Mm -hmm. didn't really know what was going on, that that's what was coming out of her mouth. And on top of that, we were able to sit with her in the hospital room and read, read her read scripture to her. We'd play her Lauren Daigle. We would, mm-hmm. Lauren Daigle is one of her favorites. And just do that, you know, over mm-hmm. her and with her. And she's made an incredible recovery. She adopted, her and her husband adopted um, three boys from the baby's home. And they're all amazing kids. And I think the oldest is about Jonathan's age, is 12. Okay. And so she was there finishing up the adoption. Her husband was home with the oldest. 
And that's when all this happened. The baby, the youngest, was on the boat with her, and he was fine, completely fine. And she um, now is completely fine. She went to one of these trauma centers in Texas. Okay. And she's doing amazing. She was a teacher, and she's teaching again. Wow, that's amazing. God just... Yeah. It should not have happened, No, yeah. honestly. Well, TBI usually, too. If, yeah. if you get that, it takes a long time to heal, if it ever heals. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. It's She's amazing. That's awesome. So thanks for sharing so much of your story with us. Are there any themes out of your life that you think arise out of your story? I would say there's a couple. God has had this way my entire life of drawing me back to him. Anytime I've... I don't want to use the word strayed because I feel like that sounds very cliche, but anytime that I've been a little further away from him or possibly moving down a path that would have led me into a life of not following him, he has very obviously, as I look back on my story, very obviously done something dramatic in my life to make his presence known and remind me of his love and brought me back. Mm -hmm. So in... In high school, there was one incident of that. College, there was a very clear incident of that. And then even coming to Missio, you know, after college when I wasn't wasn't in church for a while. So just all these different things that he's done basically to remind me, you're my child. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love you. And just set my life on a different trajectory. And as we know, a lot of people who are believers when they're young make a choice to go a different direction as mm-hmm. they become adults and are older. And I very clearly could have seen my life moving in one of those directions, but he's done some things to just bring me back to him. So that would be one theme. And I think the other is just him very obviously always providing for our needs mm-hmm. in ways that I, not that we should ever doubt <laughs> what he can do, but providing jobs, providing schools, providing and big things. Mm-hmm. Those are big things. Mm-hmm. And he continually does those over and over and over again, providing, you know, financial things that are needed. And he, he provi- he's provided everything that we need in life in really big ways. And it really helps to remind me that we're not supposed to worry because he is going to provide. And in turn, that has actually been been a testament to my family. I've had my dad say to me several times, you know, it really seems like things seem to work out for mm-hmm. you and somebody must be looking out for you. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's Jesus. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's been a really, a really cool thing too. Mm-hmm. Cool. Thanks so much. Let's move to a little thing called the lightning round. What's the most favorite place you've ever lived? Black Mountain, North Carolina. <laughs> it's not a good answer, but it's true. It's a great answer. Black Mountain is an amazing place. Mm-hmm. I, I love it here. And is I, that where y'all live right now? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's great because it's right outside Asheville, mm-hmm. but then we're in the mountains. If you could completely get rid of one month of the year, what month would it be and why? I think January, probably. I hate winter. I hate cold weather. And January just seems, I don't know, it just seems like a lull in the winter. I guess it's dark. After. Yeah, it's, it's dark. dark. It's yeah. after and the, the, the end of winter is not exactly around the corner. It's still several <laughs> months away. Yeah, exactly. And you're like, it's not going to warm up anytime soon. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. Tell me a story about a time you felt super old. 
surely working with these kids, you've had a moment where you're like, oh. Every time I hear about Minecraft, I feel like I'm 1,000 years old. Well, Anders, for a phone, she does this instead of this. For our listeners who can't yeah, see what, Hannah, she's this? holding an open hand to her ear as opposed to like the hang loose telephone mime. What a great description. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think of a story off the top of my head. See, I'm not good at lighting rounds because I can't think of things off the top of my head. Yeah. But I will say that it seems like maybe a year ago, I pretty much almost completely stopped getting carded for alcohol <laughs> at all. Mm-hmm. I want to say rarely ever happens anymore. Mm-hmm. That makes me feel mm. very old. Yeah. I don't even understand that. I, I'm, I don't. I don't understand how I could be that old, <laughs> but that's that's when I feel old. Yeah. What's your go-to dance move besides the sandwich one, where you're like making a sandwich <laughs> and then eating the sandwich? Because <laughs> that's obviously that go-to for everybody. everybody. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Like I don't even know. I don't, I'm sorry. That's okay. Fine. I can. I can. A good thing that you should do for Jonathan is if he's coming into the house. You lock the door and make him dance to get in. I do that to Mark a lot. It's a fun game. <laughs> and then you figure out your go-to dance move. <laughs> Wrapping presents. Super relaxing or super stressful? Oh, I love it. Okay. Yep. Turn on the Christmas music or Christmas movie. Sit and wrap. It's one of my favorite things to do. Do you have any excellent Christmas traditions that are like mandatory every year? Yes. My family's very, very big on tradition. Oh, I love that. Let's hear it. Hugely. So, and also, since my dad was raised Jewish, we also celebrate Hanukkah. Okay. So we have lots of holiday traditions in our home. So Hanukkah, basically, <laughs> we when we gather, we light the menorah. One of us kids will read the, um, the English blessings. The other will read the Hebrew blessings. The other will light the candles. And then that's mainly it. <laughs> My do you t- do the eight days of Christmas and play with the dreidel and eat, uh, what are those pancake, the potato thing, latkes? Eight days of Hanukkah. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I would have said that. That was just a slip of the tongue. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, my mom makes um, latkes and everyone makes their latkes differently. Mm-hmm. My moms are by far 100% the best latkes you will ever eat in your life. Okay, we need your family to come cook oh, for us or something. Man, I am telling you what, these tacos are so good. And I wait all year. She doesn't make them any yeah. other time but Hanukkah. Mm-hmm. So, yes, we do eat latkes. We eat them with applesauce. They're so good, so fattening. And she doesn't even really make a lot to go with it. Like, it's usually just fill yourself up on potatoes. Mm. <laughs> so, they're okay. so good. That's great. That, yeah. But they have carrots and um, scallions. Potato is a vegetable. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So that's Hanukkah. So Christmas, uh, every single Christmas Eve for as long as I can remember, we all gather in the living room uh, around bedtime and we read uh, Christmas stories. So my dad will read the story out of the Bible first. And then we there's several stories that we always read. So there's certain ones that get read every single Christmas Eve. Do we get to know this? Oh, sure. Well, <laughs> so um, we always read The Gift of the Magi. Mm-hmm. We always read... So we have this Norman Rockwell's Christmas book that I guess they've had for forever, and so a lot of them came from that. And then my mom really loves Mr. Edwards Meets Santa Claus from the Laura Ingalls Wilder 
oh. series. Yeah. So we always read that one. And there's <laughs> this part we always laugh at in that called where it says, <laughs> talking about Mary, or, or talking about one of the girls, and it says, and then she was sober. <laughs> and as kids, we thought that was hysterical. Sure. And so we still mm-hmm. joke about it and <laughs> say, oh, she was sober. <laughs> and uh, you don't have to put this in the podcast. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, so uh, we always read those stories, go to bed, and then the next morning, my mom always makes a quiche. And for the last several years, my sister either makes like a coffee cake or um, cinnamon rolls or something like that. Uh, my parents make coffee with a cinnamon stick in it. Mm. My and then we so we'll open presents for a little bit. We always open one at a time so that mm. everybody can watch that person open okay. that gift. Yeah, yeah. So we try to make it stretch out as long as we can. And then we pause, we go eat breakfast, and then we come back, finish opening presents. So our Christmas Eves and Christmas mornings have looked basically exactly the same for years. And our family would would have a fit if it wasn't that way. We just are so used to it that way. I love it. So and um, we also my mom and my sister and I do a lot of like Christmas baking, Christmas Mm -hmm. cookies and candies and that sort of thing together. So that's, you know, a special thing, too. I love that. It's Christmas season officially. Yeah, it is. Yay. I think we should go, we should put a Christmas song as the outro this time. Ooh, yeah. Do you have a, your, what's your favorite Christmas song? Oh, Holy Night is my oh, Holy Night. favorite Christmas song. And then um, second to that, well, oh, Holy Night is my favorite Christmas song. <laughs> That's great. I have a lot of favorite Christmas songs. That's what's your favorite Christmas movie? My favorite Christmas movie, oh, would be, it's, it's a Wonderful Life. It's a beautiful, beautiful movie. Oh my gosh. I, I don't think I, I, I probably cry every time I watch it. That's okay. So good. Good to cry. Susu's pet. If you've not seen it or you just don't like it. I don't like it. <gasps> I know. I'm going places. My heart shrank two sizes. Yeah. I know. <laughs> it's weird. I can't get on board. <laughs> well, I think that's a good lightning yeah. round. Perf. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's been fun. Thanks for having me and making it. As painless as possible. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for listening to the Vox Pop. If you would like to be a guest on the Vox Pop, you can email voxpop at mdcashville.org. That's V-O-X-P-O-P at mdcashville.org. Thanks for listening, everybody.
band middle age performing the song we three kings see you later everybody <laughs>